mind that. Mind that. But it is good to be a church on mission, right? Wow, it was so, so good that you guys were really so generous to, to fund so much of the stuff that we were able to do, being able to get in trouble, get some of the team arrested. It was funny, last Sunday after I preached on, on legal action against the church, somebody asked me, are you trying to get yourself arrested in Nepal? And I said, no, I'm going to try and get Sam arrested. <laughs> it turns out I'm more of a prophet than I realized. I, I didn't foresee leaving Jono there, but it is a warning. Don't get on my nerves. Don't get on my nerves or I will leave you there. Uh, that was actually at Lillian's request that we leave. Uh, <laughs> she just needed one more day, just, just some quiet. No, but it's good, it's good to be a church on mission. I tell you, what, you can open up to Acts chapter 8 because we'll be there very shortly. Uh, but um, but I'm, I, I hope that in the hearing of the stories, we'll hear some more tonight. I hope that in the, in, in the watching of the updates, and we'll get a video out as well, that, that uh, you're, you're hungry and that you're stirred up to grab the availability and jump at it next time we go on missions and that, of course, you might be praying and begging the Lord to open your heart if he's calling you to missions full-time, short-term, whatever it may be. It is so good to be a pastor of a church that loves the mission. I'm sure that there's something, there's something with you. When you, see, when you see lost people coming to faith, when you see people getting baptized, when you hear of churches getting planted in unreached people groups... You need to realize how significant that is, that there is still 17,000 unreached people groups in the world, meaning that they do not have a strong enough Christian indigenous population for it to be sustained in and of itself. It still needs outside help. It still needs missionary scaffolding. It, it is not big enough yet. I think it's less than 2%, things like that. That's, that's unreached. And, and if the church just cared enough, the global church, if even half of the projected amount of evangelicals in the world were true regenerate Christians, but we don't need them to be regenerate if they just give money. So if even half of the true Christians just mobilized the resources we already had and no one else in the West got saved and no more money came into the church, we would meet every unreached people group, every village, tribe, tongue, and nation by year's end. By year's end. We don't need more resources. We need more hearts aflame with the mission. There's something in you that is deeper than your soul when you see the mission going forward, isn't it? For the true Christians, you realize this is what you live for, even if you haven't lived for it much. This is what you're alive for. This is what you still exist for, the purpose of expanding God's kingdom, the church. Amen? It, uh, if, you, if you live by, when you're in Nepal, when, if, if, you live by, if you walk by sight, as you walk around and see, it is, it is a hopeless state. Just, just by the thousands, people flocking to the idols, just by the millions living in, in abject poverty because the rulers and the people just don't love neighbor enough to be righteous and to do good. It's, it's just a country in a mess. And, and there, is, there is just Hinduism everywhere. People giving of everything they have to worship gods that do nothing for them. It's, it's hopeless. And then you drive... 15 hours into the mountains, hike another hour under trees, over hills, through a little valley, over a creek, and you find a church. And in this valley, there's this church on the mountain with a cross on top of it and dozens of Christians that go into it and over the valley once claimed for the devil, there sings the praises to the Lord Jesus who made them. 
And then you talk to the pastor and you find out just 10 years, just 10 years ago, 100% lost and going to hell, this village worshipping Hindu and now over 60% now claim the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the unsaved know they're in the minority and they know we're coming for them, right? According to call to worship, as, as, as Caleb said, may, may he rule, may his glory reign from sea to sea. May the mountain, may the valley, may the whole earth be filled with his glory, Amen. It was an amazing thing to be there, and there's, there's work to be done back here. Amen? It's not the same amount of work, that's for sure, but there is still work to be done. I, was, I, I did a session on, we'll get there soon. I was doing a session on, um, on uh, pastoral, pastoral work and shepherding the flock that God has purchased with his own blood, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And I was talking to the pastors and, and just giving it to them, just, just telling them what shepherding really, really is and what it costs. And afterwards, one of the guys who, was, uh, who, who had traveled quite a way, uh, he came over and, and he said to me, he said, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I, in Nepal, pastors are far too diplomatic. We're far too, we don't say what is harsh because we care about people's feelings. He said, I wish the church of Nepal was more like the church of Australia. <laughs> and I had to tell him, I'm, I'm not all that popular back home, mate. <laughs> uh, don't ever pray that. <laughs> you, you don't want to be more like the Australian. There's work to do back home. I say this back home, I get emails. But, uh, but there's, there is work to be done here. There is, and and so it, is, it is the joy of my heart to be able to be given as teaching elder to this people, to raise us up, to send us out as a militia for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be an outpost that sends and brings in people that Jesus might be made known. Amen? The gospel might be preached. It is amazing to be back with you today. Acts chapter 8 is where we are. And we are studying today as we have over the last few weeks. I believe today is number five in this uh, short series as we topically study through the book of Acts. We're asking the question, if Jesus Christ is the New Testament Joshua, if the church is the New Testament uh, uh, commissioned people, if the whole world of lost sinners is now the, 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 the land of conquest, the promised land for the Messiah to go and take souls for himself, how exactly, how precisely does the Bible tell us that Jesus does build his kingdom? That Jesus does spread his church. How does he do it? And we've seen that it's, it's through the preaching of the word that is now revealed in clarity because we're in the last days. This is the days that the Messiah is being made known. Then we looked at the fact that it's through deep and true Christian fellowship that people see the love of God, hear the word of Christ, and come in and are drawn in. We looked at the fact that it is through persecution, uh, not persecution, but a negative legal action against the church that makes the church bold and strong and, and praying. And there's another one that I forget, but today, I hope you don't forget, I'm sure you remember what I preach on, but today we're doing persecution. How the church is persecuted and Jesus does not allow it. I don't want you to ever think that Jesus allows persecution against his church. Now, no, I'm not a prosperity preacher today. You've come to the right church, but God does not allow persecution to come to his church. He ordains it. He sends it. He uses it. Inasmuch as we pray for earthly help and things like that, don't forget that, that if we pray, God, take away all persecution, it's, it's his hand that is on the chisel. It's the hammer that is in his hand that is driving persecution into us to shape us like Jesus Christ. 
He is the one that does not allow but sends persecution to us for our good. We're going to look in Acts chapter 1, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1 to 3 this morning. <clears throat> After the, the deacon, Stephen, had preached and was killed, it then says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. And he dragged them off, women, men, and committed them to prison. May God bless the reading of his own word to our midst this morning. The early church had fellowship. We saw this. The early church in those early months and years in Jerusalem had red hot fellowship. They had unity, which even at one point was at risk because the Greek widows weren't getting fed while the Jewish widows were. They, they sorted it out. They established leaders called deacons, and they managed it. There was, a, there was a roaring unity among the people as they proclaimed Jesus. They had biblical leadership, as we see in Acts 6 the apostles and the deacons, the ministers of the word and the ministers to the physical needs of the people. They were witnessing, Acts chapter 2 through 4 tells us, they were praying for boldness, they were going in boldness, they were preaching in boldness, people were being saved. But that was not her commission. The commission of the church was not to have unity, to have fellowship, to proclaim the gospel and to establish biblical churches in Jerusalem. Her commission that Jesus said was going to every nation. Her commission was, as Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the spirit of power so that you may be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world. So they were doing the right thing for Jerusalem to a, to a degree. They were witnessing to Jerusalem, doing all those other good things there. But because they had forgotten the, the going, the sending element of her mission, everything else was therefore out of joint. And they were doing good things, but without the right end, and therefore they were closed in on themselves. They were not going, so even the fellowship, even the leadership, even the unity, even the preaching, all of that was lacking its most necessary element, which was the going and the building of the church in every city, tribe, tongue, and nation. So, what obedience would not do, suffering was sent to accomplish. Verse 1 here says, Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. So this is the first thing we're looking at that, that persecution does. It, it providentially scatters the seed. It providentially scatters the seed. The devil is like the man who saw, a, who saw a, 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 an enemy in his field 
sowing his seeds, using his ground to sow the, his seeds. And, and he took out his rifle, and, and as he aimed at the man, he, he jumped on his horse, and he started galloping out of the seed, and he, he took aim, and he fired. And the bullet ripped through the bag of grain and spread it all over the man's field. It wasn't what he was aiming to do. This is what persecution is like. The devil takes up his rocks, the devil takes up his spear, and he takes up his arm of persecution and damages the church and attacks the church, but all that he is doing is spreading her further and wider and sending her to her knees in deeper prayer. When we talk about God's providence, we mean the, the, the way that God ordinarily controls every element of human history. It's all playing out according to his plan. And so when persecution comes, we, we don't simply say, and you know what, it's quite coincidental, probably accidental. I'm sure God, God, God was glad when he looked back on his actions. But it happened that the gospel went out exactly as he had commanded after he sent some persecution. God's not doing trial and error. This was intentional. Suffering, persecution is how God scatters the seed. The last time that the words Judea and Samaria are used in the book of Acts was back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When he had told them, go, preach in Jerusalem, preach in Judea, preach in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And now, providentially, we're being told, well, that's where they ended up going because of the persecution of Saul against the church after the murder of Stephen. Look at verse 4 in Acts chapter 8. Verse 4 in Acts chapter 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Good. Very good. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. What, would you look at that? What an idea. What an idea. Obeying Jesus. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had, who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. They went about preaching the word as they were scattered from the persecution. Philip went to Samaria. Other men went further north as we see in Acts chapter 11. There is, there is an element of the mission going out beyond the human planning. They didn't, they didn't sit down and say, so, so we'll sacrifice uh, uh, Stephen. They're better pastors than me. They don't sacrifice people for the mission and leave them behind in other countries. They didn't say, we'll sacrifice Stephen and then we'll all run away and go preach. No, they, they had all the plans to stay where they were and preach. It's God who spread them. And beyond their planning, they had a mission trip to Samaria entirely accidentally. Maybe some of you will have an unplanned mission trip to jail. Maybe some of you will have an unplanned mission trip back home if you're not a permanent resident here and you see that as God's hand to take the gospel wherever you go. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Turn with me there. Between Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter, the end of Acts chapter 11 here, there's the, there's the conversion of Paul, there's the dream of Peter to uh, preach to the Gentiles and all of that. But here in Acts chapter 11, we see it in, uh, we see those two stories converge in practice, the conversion of Paul and the preaching to the Gentiles. Look at verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled far, far north, 
they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Oh, the technicality. They are technically going to other places. They are technically going to other, other areas, like Jesus told them, but they're only making disciples of the Jews. It was not, don't think that just because the Spirit came, the whole church had this immediate understanding of all of the revelation of the mystery. There was still mystery to be unveiled through the apostles. There was still the Jewish-only mindset that had to be cracked and was largely cracked through Peter's dreams of, uh, that God gave him in Acts chapter 10 and 11. But they were going, but only speaking to those who were Jews. Verse 20, but there were some of them, of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming up to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also. That would be the Greek speakers, the, the Gentile men, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent up Barnabas of Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. What a glorious thing it would have been to be surprised that non-Jews were being saved, and, and in great joy being able to send up one of your, your Jewish guys to make sure it's all legit, and he gets there, and he can confirm this is the grace of God. This is no phony, try-hard Jewish church. This is Gentiles being converted because the power has such gospel. They were amazed at it. There was, there was great fruit, as we read here in verse 24. He was a, uh, uh, he, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit of, and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. A great many people were streaming into this new church up in Antioch. So that's the first part of Acts chapter 9 through 11. That Peter had been told, don't call unclean what God has called clean. Preach to the Gentiles. Allow them to be saved. And Cornelius and his household were. Here's what we've seen again in practice. They go out. They speak to the Gentiles. They're saved. Here's the second part that happened in chapter 9. The conversion of Paul. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Look at verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the apostle Paul and Barnabas became fellow teaching elders, strengthening them, building them up, and sending them out. Isn't that a, wouldn't that be a powerful church? This is, this is the church that will end up sending Paul and Barnabas on their first and second missionary journeys. This is the church that would be the main supporting and sending church of the Apostle Paul who would plant dozens more. That's cool. You know what's cooler? Why does the church of Antioch exist? Why does the church of Antioch exist? It's because their now pastor started killing people back in Jerusalem. Remember that? He goes by Paul now, so you, you, don't, you don't get that. You start, don't start asking questions when all of the, the Christian converts that he's baptizing are telling their testimony. This guy called Saul, he killed a guy, started chasing me, a Mr. Rock, you know, dodged a spear, got free. Here's the pastor over in the corner looking sheepish. Sorry about that. 
His name wasn't really Paul, Sawyer. So they were both the same name. The point is that, that here's Paul, the guy whose, whose persecution sent those people. Now he's there building them up in the faith, about to be sent by them on mission. I love how God providentially scatters the seed of the gospel through the persecution that comes. How this frustrates the devil. How this frustrates all of his servants in the human and in the demonic realm. Martin Luther's hymn, How a Mighty Fortress is Our God, says, The word, which is above all earthly powers, no thanks to those powers, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. In other words, the word of God, the gospel, it abides and it is above every earthly power and it's by no thanks to them. They all try and pull it down. They all try and shoot at this bag of grain and all that happens is that the seed is scattered. When we were over in an undisclosed country, because now we're recording, <clears throat> yes, some of our team got arrested. As we, as we stood off a bus, we had about five minutes just waiting around before we split up. And the, the, another missionary team got off another bus. They were just missionaries for the radical Hindu group extremists who had an army and high-vis shirts. And they came over and saw what we were holding in our hands and started to question us. It wasn't much of a questioning. It was more of a barraging. And they were, they were asking and they were, and they were yelling. And I just kept going, only English, only English. I'm sorry. Pointed them over to Blake, got our gals out of the way. And they mobbed, recording, yelling, screaming, threatening murder. Not all talk. These guys murder people. Threatening murder, grabbing our translators, pulling them away, taking them to police, all of that. And, and just a few days later, after we, we made much earnest prayer, as, as we learned two weeks ago, remember? Imprisonment makes the people pray, and so we prayed, and so they were released. And, and a few days later, we're in the mountains, and, and one of our team is tagged in a Facebook video put out by the extremist social media group. And here they are. On this TV, all, all of our faces, not mine, I pulled my cap down. I was, I was, I was, I was privy to it. I knew, I knew what was going on. The faces of the missionaries, the translators were on this video going out. To, 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 I, I looked at it this morning. 22,000 people have seen this video and they're threatening death. And it's like, these people are, are saying, you know, but, oh, you know what? Here's what they were saying. <laughs> pulled up one of our tracks and they've got a recording of one of them reading key parts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> to their own followers. This is the Lord's providential spreading of his seed through persecution. The devil tries and he tries and he tries and he tries and he can't help but accomplish the purposes of God. I know what I'll do. I'll send mankind through the trickery of the fruit of Eden. I'll send them into the fall, into sin. Then what would God do? He'll tell you what he'll do, devil. He'll send one of his own persons, the son, into their flesh to be the one that crushes your head. This was always the plan, thank you. If we could say it, we'd say thank you devil, but we won't. We'll say praise God for his providence and his sovereign grace. Amen? Amen. This is what God does using persecution. I could even add the story of Calvin, how he fled from Catholic France into Switzerland, the city of Geneva, because he, he couldn't remain in France. He was Catholic, he was a Protestant, he was leaving, and because of that, he met a guy called William Farrell who grabbed him and said, a curse of God be on your life, Calvin, if you don't stand here, preach the word of God, and build up the reforming church. Calvin gave in, and he became one of the greatest systematizers of the reformed church in the whole of history. 
or John Knox, who was sent out of Scotland. She, she regrets this. But the Queen persecuted John's, John Knox. He fled from Scotland. And where did he find himself? Among a persecuted refugee church in Geneva under one John Calvin. And there he was radicalized. There, the Reformation truth was, was burning so bright in his heart that when he turned to Scotland, he would light it aflame with this truth and nothing could stop him. He preached, he prayed, he preached, he prayed, he ran away when the armies came for him and the Queen of Scotland said, I do not fear the armies of the world so much as I fear the prayers of John Knox. Praise God for persecution and what he does through it. One of the great things that persecution does, this is number two, is that it gives us the honor of suffering with Christ. Romans 8 verse 16 and 17 says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The great joy of the Christian is not this or that blessing. It is unity with Jesus Christ. It is unification. It is union with Jesus Christ. That's the crowning joy. And in that union, there is everything else, eternal life, justification, adoption, all of that, and one of them is suffering with him, suffering alongside him. Philippians 1 verse 29 it has been granted to you. It has been a gift to you from God that, you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In suffering, in persecution, we join and mingle our blood with the blood of martyrs and saints. And we join and mingle our blood with the blood of Christ, not at all to accomplish some kind of atonement, but to deliver that atonement, that we die for the same purpose of Christ, that is to build and establish his people on earth, the church. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58 to Acts chapter 1, so we can go back to our main text today, Acts chapter 8, just a few verses above that. We see the, the dying moments of Stephen. I wish I could preach again his sermon but we did that last year. Go check out our Acts series from last year as we recap his sermon. But today it's enough to show us this, the death of that great saint, Stephen. And as they were stoning, oh, sorry, verse 59. No, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You would hear more from him later. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. It reads almost as a copy of the crucifixion narrative who Jesus, he says that he committed his spirit in into the Father's hands, that, that he, he hung, he prayed for his killers, that this sin would not be held against them. This is what, this is what persecution does. It, it gives us the honor of being like Jesus, of suffering like Jesus, of being able to say, in this moment, I'm not perfect, I deserve this and worse, this is not by my merits, I'm accomplishing no one's salvation, but in this persecution, I am like Christ. 
In the hatred that I'm bearing, I am just like Christ. And in the suffering for the purpose of the mission, I am on the same mission as my general, the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is what suffering does. Our blood joins with his. And just as, let me, let me, let me say this carefully. Jesus' blood purchased all souls that will be saved. It, it purchased the world of redemption. The saints' blood, Christians' blood, is used by Christ to, to purchase or to mark out for himself what lands he will claim. In your bulletin, you will find a recap of John G. Payton's life, the missionary to what is now called Vanuatu, back then called the New Hebrides. Before he went, John Williams and James Harris went and landed in 1839. Both of these missionaries were killed and eaten by cannibals that same year, only minutes after going ashore. 48 years later, the veteran John Payton wrote, Thus were Hebrides baptized in the blood of the martyrs. And Christ thereby told the whole Christian world that he had claimed these islands as his own. The saint's blood becomes like the uh, like the blood in Egypt that is painted over a house. When God sends and has his people killed, there he claims, the ground is calling out to me. Redeem us. Send your missionaries. And so God answers. What a faith-filled way John G. Payton gives us to view persecution. Thirdly, persecution keeps us focused on the mission. Persecution keeps us focused on the mission by making us love the world and its pleasures less and love Jesus Christ and his kingdom more. In Acts chapter 1, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 8, at the end of verse 1, it says, There arose that, that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation, and Saul was ravaging. Entering house to house, he dragged them off and sent them to prison. This was, a, this was the, that they started spreading, and the next verse says, but they didn't stop proclaiming that, that, that Stephen had died. The church became all the more purified. The devout men went and buried him. They were praying. They were still doing their mission, but now with the comfort sliced off the top, with, with the fat that was on the church sliced off of their waist. God was, God was purifying thinning the church and, and taking away any of the, the love of the world that came through comfortability. And they turned instead all the more zealously to missions. It was John G. Payton, we just mentioned, who was in Vanuatu. And he'd been chased by, a, by, a, by an army of villagers with muskets and swords and spears. And he was being chased. And his one Christian friend in that village helped get him away and found a tree for him to climb and stay in for safety. And, and the night passes on and the night is going long. And he's sitting there in the tree and watching his would-be murderers run through the village. He says in his autobiography, I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly in my soul than on that moonlit, uh, than, than when the moon, moonlight flickered among those chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone. If it be to glorify God, 
my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence. Persecution is that ordained means of God which drives us to our knees, which makes us love the world less, and makes us more holy in our love for Jesus Christ. Fourthly, persecution becomes an opportunity for proclamation. We could go back to Acts chapter 7 and see that this was exactly what Stephen did. It was exactly what got Stephen killed. As he was arrested and pulled before the Sanhedrin, they said, make your case. And he says, I'll make Jesus' case. You're sinners. You killed Jesus. Repent. Dead. Stephen had, had preached such a sermon because he saw in that not an opportunity to defend himself, but to give a defense for the hope that was in himself. And so persecution becomes this providential time to be able to speak to persecutors, to be able to open our mouths and preach to them. Thomas Cramner was under, was under Queen Mary I, and he had done before her much good work in reforming the Church of England. And, and then he had received persecution from the new Catholic Queen. She made him so scared that he recanted everything he had taught about Protestantism and justification by faith alone. He denied God before men, and God would deny him despite all of his good work. He was yet still charged with treason against the queen, and he was dragged to be burned, and on his way, he was allowed to read out his pre-prepared state. And I've told this story before, but you love it if you've heard it before. You love it if you never have either. His pre-prepared, pre-checked statement about all that he was wrong, about all the things that he said wrong against Catholicism and wrong against the queen. And so he took his stand. He was in the large, lifted up uh, pulpit uh, in, the, in, 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 the, in the large hall to speak to the nobles and the kings and the queens and tell them how wrong he was. And the spirit came upon him again. And he recanted of his recantation. He repented of his false repentance. He drew back his drawing back. He shrinked back from his shrinking back. He stood forward with boldness, scrunched the piece of paper, and reaffirmed everything he'd ever said about free salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. They hurled at him. They were angry at him. They pulled him down, threw him to the fire. And as it burned, he wiggled an arm free, shoved it into the flame, and said, this is the hand that signed the lie against all that I had taught. This is the hand that will burn first and as the flesh dropped off he reaffirmed with his blood his belief in the freeness of the gospel that the Catholic Church would bury and hide he used the persecution as a momentary opportunity for preaching that is what persecution becomes if we have eyes to see it Luke chapter 21 tells us that when you are dragged before them when they persecute you this will be your opportunity to bear witness and so let it be. Number five, persecution emboldens other believers, calling them to arms as they see Christians suffer. Another missionary story, though, though missionaries are not the only ones who can be faithful enough to suffer, but another missionary story is of, uh, of, of Chet Bitterman. He was a missionary in the 80s, 1981. He was in uh, Colombia, and he was... Uh, 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 taken and put in prison for seven weeks. Well, a guerrilla prison, so a small basement with no light, by the guerrilla group N19 on March 6, 1981. His wife and children waited dearly and prayed earnestly for his release, and then he was shot in the chest, wrapped 
in a Colombian rebel flag and left in a car park. The Wycliffe Bible translators were the ones who had employed him and sent him. The Wycliffe Bible translators said this, applications for overseas service with us doubled in the year following his death. This trend was continued in following years, full stop. John Piper says of this, it is not the kind of missionary mobilization that any of us would choose, but it is God's way. Quoting John chapter 12, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Persecution emboldens other believers, calling them to arms. Like the story of David and Goliath. Do you remember the, the fearing Israelites backed up, armored up, weaponed up, but backed up because they were afraid of the taunts and the chance of that champion Goliath. And once they saw David go forward and defeat him, it says they ran, but not away. They ran to the battle. They ran making the enemy flee and they sprinted to action. This is the effect that, that, that martyrs, that the persecuted, whether dying or just being mistreated, has on the church. As we see our Davids inflamed with the spirit, go forward and stare down the face of death and say, you are a vanquished foe. Even if I die, I win. Even if you kill me, you lose. You're dead. Death, your days are numbered. When we stare down the face of persecution and can say, let it all come upon me, Jesus Christ is the saving Lord, the rest of the people who were cowardly before, the rest of us who, who struggle to share the gospel, who, who count our worldly goods and pleasures far too dearly, we see it, we are inflamed, and we run with them. This is what persecution does to the church. It galvanizes her. Next, the church is, sorry, persecution of the church and of individuals becomes a dear witness to the persecutors. Your persecution becomes a, a witness to and against your employer who mistreats you for being a Christian and standing on those ethics. Your mistreatment and your bullying witnesses to and against those former friends who now mock and deride you. Your, your upstanding conduct and your constant witness in the face of persecution and mistreatment and, for some of us I know, even violence and threats, it is a witness to and against those who mistreat you. Stephen, Stephen stuck in Paul's mind. It says that Stephen's face shone like an angel. That face stuck in Saul's mind. The words that Stephen was speaking, which Acts chapter 6 tells us that none of the Pharisees could, could withstand him because he out-argued them all, that ground on Paul. His argumentation of Jesus Christ, though unlearned, stuck in Paul's mind. And his limp body being beaten and tossed to and fro by the rocks that struck him and his bleeding body kneeling on the ground and crying out for forgiveness to his persecutors, that stuck with Paul. That was burned into his mind. And so it is when persecutors see our upstanding conduct and our, our continual witness. Michael Card tells a story of a man named Joseph who was an African tribal warrior. This was just in the last century, in the, in the late 1900s. 
Michael Card tells the story of this African warrior who met an unnamed evangelist on, on the road of Africa who shared the gospel with him, sat down, did, did studying of the Christian scriptures, and, and something that is fairly rare was that there was this momentary conversion to Christian faith right then and there. And, and he, was, he was aflamed, and over the following weeks as he was returning home, he, he was growing in the Lord, and he was inflamed with the Spirit, and he thought, I, I need to tell my whole tribe this good news. There's a, there's a Savior. There's a God who judges. There's a Savior from that judgment. It's Jesus Christ. He died and rose. Anybody and everybody can be saved and must repent, and we get eternal life. Let's tell the world. And he went and he started to tell his, his village. And not only did they not jump at the opportunity like he had done, they were angry. And as he went house to house, not stopping, okay, they were angry. And as he went house to house, eventually the men grabbed him, held him face down, and the women whipped him with strands of barbed wire, walked him out into the desert, left him to die. He was able to drag himself to a small waterhole under the shade, and over days passing in and out of consciousness, he came back. And he realized, like many of us would, I must have left something out. I probably didn't tell him to repent hard enough. Maybe, maybe the love of Jesus wasn't clear enough. Did I, I miss something? And so he went back. Knock, knock, knock. Sorry about last time. Jesus. I tell you about this Savior Jesus who, who saved my soul, can save your soul. And, and again, again, the men grabbed him. And over those wounds that were barely scabbed over, the women whipped him again with strands of barbed wire and left him for dead. Now it's, an, it's a certified miracle that he didn't die. Again he awakes and concludes, I die this way or I die faithless, so I'll go back and be faithful. He goes back in and before he can even get the words of Jesus out of his, his mouth as he's, he's limping into town, they grab him again. They hold him down, and this time the women beat. But he keeps proclaiming while he's being whipped. And he said, but at the third whipping, the women were weeping. Weeping as they whipped him. Weeping as they struck him. Weeping as they were, they were being spattered with his, with his lifeblood. They, they knew. What are we doing? How is this righteous? How is this deserved? They knew, but they, they continued. And when he woke this time, it wasn't under a tree in the desert. Let me read this. In Michael Card's words, of the third time, he returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he had a chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and probably last time, he spoke to them of Christ the Lord, and before he passed out, the last thing he saw was that the women who were beating him began to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed, the ones who had so severely beat him were now trying to save his life and nurse him back to health. The entire village had come to Christ. I'll read that again. The entire village had come to Christ. <laughs> Why? Because his suffering, his persecution became to them a witness of a love that is greater than death of a love that would suffer and die, of a love that would come to earth. His, his suffering, our suffering, bears witness to and against our persecutors that Jesus Christ is real, 
that he is true, that he is God, that he has loved us, that he came down from heaven, not to, not to deliver an edict of condemnation, not to stomp the world in wrath, but to take the wrath of God, to deliver a message of salvation, of justification, of adoption, of freedom, of forgiveness to any and all who would just believe. Not walk back your life and undo your great sins, not become a righteous person or even become somebody with a Christian lifestyle. No, the one thing that this good news of the king demands is that you believe his promise. Though sinners, though enemies, though persecutors you are, you may be forgiven in this moment, in this instant, because Christ's blood was shed in your place. And to confirm all of that, to establish the veracity, the truthfulness, that, uh, that your own righteousness can do nothing for you, that Jesus alone can bring you to God. To prove it, God raised his dead son into glorious life where no death can ever touch him again, neither can death touch those in him. I mean, they can put your body to sleep, but that's not death. Death sends us to Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're a Christian, we must ask. In, in, in John Payton's words, if thus thrown back on your own soul like he was, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? Christians, we must ask ourselves this. Has Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, been drilled into our hearts? He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Verse 13, therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the camp, to the place of shame and honor and, and, and dis, dis, disrespect and mistreatment. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Let us be cut off for him because he was cut off for us. John 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. What are you trying to give us, Jesus? Peace or tribulation? Peace amid tribulation. Have peace amid tribulation. How, Jesus? How can we go out and be whipped and beaten, mocked and spat and fired and mistreated and not even honestly? They don't even listen to what I'm saying. At least represent me right. How can we have peace amidst this tribulation? And Jesus says, take heart, I have conquered the world. Yeah, tribulation. But tribulation of a king that is falling down the valley. He strikes, he flails, he shoots, but he's falling. And soon he'll be in the lake of fire himself and death will be dead. Take heart. Tribulation, yes, but peace amidst it all. And I have to speak to the unbelievers in our room. John Payton's question comes to you. Have you a friend when you are close to death that you can lean on? Do you know Jesus? Maybe you've had somewhat of a Christianity that, that flirts with the idea of eternal life and even thinks highly of Christian morality, so much so that you judge other people and, and they're so unrighteous and I'm a hypocrite, I know, but I, but I know the facts. Maybe you have a, a Christianity that, that you would fear ever having to share your hope. You've never shared the gospel and if you ever have, it was, it was abysmal mess of cowardice because, because you are not one with Jesus. Because his spirit does not come into you to make you bear witness. 
Because, because death is still reigning over you, because sin is still reigning in you. If this is you, then Jesus Christ invites and commands as the only sovereign king, repent of your sin. Bring no unrighteousness, it will not be accepted. God is not looking for what you can bring. There's not any room in salvation for your righteousness. Just come naked, come empty-handed, come useless, come worthless, come broken. He gives the all. He gives the forgiveness. He is the Savior. You will be the saved. Throw your life onto him and live with him and for him. He is your Savior, and through you, he will save others. Let's all pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you for the power that is in your blood. We thank you for the power that is in the word of the gospel. We thank you for the power that is in the spirit sent to us from on high. We thank you for the power that is invested in the word of God. But all of this is the self-same power, the power of the living God to save. Lord, some of us in this room think on our own lives and all we can see is lostness and darkness and death and sin, and so we are hopeless. Can God save me? And if he could, would he ever? God, would you please come with the assurance that only the Spirit can give and tell those hearts, yes, 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 Jesus will save you. Yes, he can, and yes, he's willing. Would you give to them a spirit-born faith so that they can come to the cross and embrace it, not just as their salvation, but as their lifestyle? Would you give to us, Lord God, would you give to us this morning a, a harvest of souls plucked from death? Those who have placed their faith in Jesus for salvation alone, Lord God, please do this work in our midst. And for every last one of us that knows Jesus, that, is, that has named him as our Lord, that, is, that, that, have, that have committed through the waters of baptism, that we will be his disciples in this life and to the death, that we will not just promise to die for him, but we will prove that we are willing by living for him. Lord God, would you inflame us with boldness? Would you, inf would, you, would you take us away from our cowardice? Would you, would you stand as the strong man with a shield so that, so that lethargy cannot overcome us? So that, so that softness and worldly pleasures do not dampen the flame for mission? Lord God, if we go to a distant people group, and may many go, or if we remain and we serve and we evangelize wherever we go, let it be out of conviction that it is for usefulness, that it is for kingdom productivity. Lord God, send this church. Raise us up and then send us and scatter us. And if we will not go, then send the fieriest persecution that you can, that we would be sent. For we are yours and we are not our own. And we pray all of this in the name of of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.